Y'all can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. That's where we'll be. Last week, we were looking at verses 5 through 13, talking about what God intended for man to be, how we blew it, and then how Christ restores it by becoming a man and representing man before God. And we noted last week that Jesus didn't become less by becoming a man either, but he became a man in order to make man more than what he had become because of sin. We're going to get really deep into the weeds on that this morning in verses 14 through 18 about how God became a man and why. And so let's just start there by reading uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. It's the word of the Lord. God became a man to defeat the devil and to restore humanity. We, we see all that here in five verses, and that's the main idea of, of the sermon this morning. And a little help to help us uh, dial that in a little bit, I've got four points. We'll talk about the humanity of Christ, the victory of Christ, the atonement of Christ, and the continuing ministry of Christ. And I don't know how I'm going to do it all in the time that we have here. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this great truth. We thank you for this great salvation. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in that salvation this morning. And, and Father, I just want to ask, you know, we, we all know it's hot in this room, but uh, we trust your sovereign hand. We trust that you are in control. And God, I just want to pray because it's true. We have an enemy that works against us that would love nothing more than to distract your people this morning, to keep them from receiving the truth of your word. Lord, to, to make them bitter in their hearts. God, we pray that you would protect us this morning for your glory, for your namesake, that our attention would be set on your word, that we would be riveted by it, Lord, I pray that you would do that now, that you would be pleased to use me, fallible man, to preach the glorious truth of your infallible word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so as we've said before, there's some thick theology in Hebrews. All right, and we don't want to skim over things. We want to make sure we kind of unpack this stuff. We've seen the divinity of Jesus already in previous verses, and here we get the humanity of Jesus. So we've got to deal with that, Okay. We've got the victory of Jesus over death and the devil and what his atonement accomplishes for those that he died for. Let's talk of propitiation for sin in verse 17, so we'll get into that. And then how Jesus' suffering and being tempted makes him a merciful 
and faithful high priest that has compassion for us and how his suffering and being tempted shapes his continuing ministry as our high priest. And it all starts with Jesus being both God and man. So we'll start there with the humanity of Christ, point number one. Jesus is God, we got that, but he is also a man. He has to be both in order to save us. So that's the first answer to why God became a man. He became a man to save us. And that was a hard sell for first century Jews. We mentioned that last week as well. It was even hard, a hard sell centuries later in the church. I mean, people just had a hard time wrapping their minds around how God could be a man. It was just so, so far from their minds. People would have said, sure, Jesus is God, but he wasn't fully a man. I mean, not like we are. Maybe a superman. I had a professor in seminary actually give us that example. I thought it was really helpful. You know, Superman, you think about Superman. Everybody knows Superman. You think about Superman, he looks human, doesn't he? But he's not really human. You know, he puts on the glasses and, and, and plays human pretty well, but he's really an alien from, from another planet. He's not actual flesh and blood. He's, he's bulletproof. He shoots rays out of his eyeballs, jumps over buildings in a single bound has God-like strength. That's how people thought of Jesus. Looked like a man. Couldn't really be a man if he was God. And like I said, this wasn't just something they were struggling with at the time that Hebrews was written. This was something people were still arguing over and trying to wrap their minds around in the fourth century. You know, in, in uh, 325 AD, there was a church council called to sort out whether Jesus was really God that was sort of the first thing they took up, this Council of Nicaea. And it condemned Arianism, this idea that Jesus was a created being. That's the heresy that was dealt with then. But then some 50 years later, there's another council, the Council of Constantinople, which dealt with this issue, this heresy regarding Jesus' humanity. Right? They said, yes, we've crossed those T's, we've dotted those I's, Jesus is eternal, he's divine, but he's not fully human. And then that heresy was put to bed, and a man named Gregory of Nazianzus nailed it right on the head. He said something, this is what he said, what is not assumed is not healed. That which is not assumed cannot be healed. Jesus had to be fully man, or man could not be perfectly represented before God. Man could not be healed. If Jesus wasn't fully a man, his death would have not it would not have been a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of man. And if Jesus wasn't fully man, his obedience would not have been sufficient to make us righteous in God's sight. What is not assumed is not healed. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, truly took to himself the fullness of a human nature. Right? Not the likeness of a human nature, but the fullness of a human nature. He really was a human being. Not just God wearing a human costume, okay? You see? And the author of Hebrews wants to bring that same thought home in their minds here. He says, flesh and blood, verse 14. He could have said body. There's a word for that. He could have said man. But he really nails the point home. I don't want you to imagine God in a man suit. I don't want you to imagine Jesus as, as having a body. No, flesh and blood, he says. 
Jesus was made of the same stuff that we are. He had bones and, 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 and breathes air. He has to cut his fingernails. He has to use the restroom. Might have got a hold of some bad Taco Bell at one time or whatever they had back then. You know? Like this is, this is real. He even came into the world the same way we all do, through his mother's womb. Didn't march down on a cloud, on a stairway from heaven, but through his mother's womb. He was a man. He got hot. He got cold. He got uncomfortable. He got sick. You know, that's why I don't like that line in that Christmas song, Away in a Manger, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Yes, he did. He's a man. That's the point. He's just like us. He partook. He himself partook of the same things as us, it says there in verse 14. And why? Why does it say he did that? Why does it say Jesus had to become a man with flesh and blood just like us and partake of the same things as us? Look at the rest of the verse. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so that's our next point, the victory of Christ. Why did God become a man? To die in order to destroy death and defeat the devil. That's why. Well, I thought he came to save us. Well, he did. That's, that's part of it, right? But he doesn't just come to rescue you from your foe. He comes to defeat his foe. The reason he came, the reason he took on flesh was to defeat Satan. You have to turn there now, but if you were to look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says that explicitly. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what our author says here. Jesus had to become a man and die in order to defeat the devil and death. So this is, this is a big deal. This is exciting stuff, right? Because this is the great climax of this cosmic drama playing out. It's, it's the whole... Uh, Serpent bruising the heel of the seed of the woman and, you know, the seed of the woman crushing the head of, of the serpent from Genesis 3.15, that first appearance of the gospel, what theologians call the proto-euangelion, right? We look at that and we see the first little whisper of the gospel includes this conflict and points to the victory Christ would have over the devil. If I asked you, what is man's greatest problem? What would you say? Death. That's man's greatest problem. Sin is at the root, it's the cause of that problem, but death is the curse that was put on man. And that curse of death is what must be removed. There must be victory over death. Death must be undone. Death smells like judgment, doesn't it? It's because it is. It's what it is. It's a horrific thing. It's unnatural to man. We were never made to die. That's why it's so alarming. That's why it's so tragic. 
It shouldn't happen. Anyone who tells you that death is just a part of life, right, has been watching too much Lion King. You know, the whole circle of life thing. Death is an unacceptable consequence of sin. That's what it is. It has to be dealt with. Not just accepted as a matter of fact. It's not part of life. It is the antithesis of life. It must be destroyed. It is a curse. It is judgment. And we live in fear of that judgment. It says there in verse 15, Jesus became a man to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Isn't that true of us generally, as human beings, afraid of death? Don't we all know we're living out a death sentence? I mean, I know that sounds morbid this morning, but it's no good you know, hiding from that fact and pretending it doesn't exist. The truth is, because of that judgment of death, the fear of death looms over us and very much drives the way that a lot of us live. It keeps us from doing certain things and it entices us to do others. We may avoid risks we should take for fear of death and we may waste our lives simply trying to live longer, trying to dodge death, hiding from death. You know, there are people throughout history who actually uh, risked their lives searching for this fabled fountain of youth. You know? You can look that up. That's true. That happened. I mean, not, not, not the fountain of youth thing, but the quest for it, right? The quest for the fountain of youth, that happened. People did that. That's a life of slavery. That's a wasted life. A person without hope in Christ lives constantly under this fear of death, and it drives how they spend their lives. They spend their lives trying to hide from death and avoid it rather than investing their lives in eternity. What would change about your life if you weren't afraid of death? There's a quote I like from uh, Stonewall Jackson, who is known to be a very brave man. And he was very brave because he was a Christian. And here's how you can know, right, that he, he, he really was a Christian. He wasn't just playing Christian, right? He truly ha- he understood his union with Christ. This is what he said about death. My religious beliefs teach me to feel as safe in battle as in bed, God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself with that, but to be always ready whenever it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and all men would be equally brave. What if you knew? What if you knew, down in your bones, you don't have to be afraid anymore? What if the judgment behind death was removed? How would that change your life? Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became a man so that death loses its sting for you. So that that judgment behind the death isn't there anymore. And that's true for anyone who is trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. There is no more judgment for you. Death has lost its sting for you. Now, it'll still sting your family. 
and those who love you. It's still going to sting them. That's a bitter reality we face under the sun. Until that day, our Redeemer returns and the dead are raised and glorified as he is now. But we don't have to fear death. It has been conquered. There must be victory over death, and so Jesus became a man in order to defeat death, man's greatest enemy. And the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, says there at the end of verse 14. And it raises a question, right? Who, who has the ultimate power over death? I thought it was God, right? Then God, God's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He, he controls uh, when people are born, when they die, so on and so forth. But looking back here at the end of verse 14, it says the one who has the power of death is the devil. It's important to note, Satan doesn't have ultimate power over death, but he does influence the thing that causes it, which is sin. And so what we see here, okay, what we're finding out is that the only way to beat death is to defeat sin. How's that happen? Well, that's our next point, the atonement of Christ. If the curse for sin is death, the only way to remove the curse is a death, a death that satisfies that requirement. And so it must be the death of a man. And we'll see in later chapters, it's not the blood of bulls and goats that can atone for the sins of man. A man must die in man's place to remove the curse of death on man. So we need a flesh and blood representative, not a sort of kind of man, not God in a man suit, not a superman, a real flesh and blood human. Kind that bleeds when you beat him. Not the kind that pretends to be in pain, but one who cries when he's in pain. The kind that relies on his heart beating and his lungs working to continue living. The kind you can run a spear through the side of and watch the life flow out of him. That kind of man. That's why Jesus became a man. Born to die in order to atone for the sins of those he came to save. To die a death that would satisfy the requirement so the works of the devil could be destroyed. Here's an interesting question. How can the only solution to the curse of death be a death? How does that work? Well, because as we said before, death is a judgment. A just judgment, and that judgment must be carried out. The curse of death can only be lifted through a death because God's wrath must be satisfied. Jesus' death satisfies the wrath of God, and it liberates us from it. You know, when we talk about being saved, what, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? This is an important question, parents, to ask your children. As they begin to profess faith in Christ, even at a young age, that should not surprise you, by the way, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what we're praying for. It's why we baptize them. It's why you're discipling them at home. It should not surprise you. God is faithful when he promises blessing to his people throughout generations. But when they begin to profess faith and are trying to understand these things for themselves and, and the Holy Spirit's 
you know, sort of letting these things come home in their minds and in their hearts, a good question to ask is, what is it you are saved from? Every, every Christian needs to know the answer to that question. It's not death, right? We'll all still die one day. But what's behind that death? What's waiting on the other side of that death for everyone who is born of Adam's seed? The awful wrath of Almighty God. That's what? Eternal punishment for our sins against an eternal and holy God. If you are saved, you have been saved from the furious wrath of God who is a consuming fire who for every sin committed just stokes that fire. If atonement is possible for us, it must be an atonement that can satisfy that terrible wrath of God due for man's sin. And again, man's sin, right? That's why Jesus became a man. It's not angels that he saves. It's not angels that he helps, it says there in verse 16. There are such a thing as fallen angels, aren't there? Right? And they've incurred the wrath of God. There's wrath for them too, but Jesus didn't become a man to save them. He didn't come to redeem them. He helps the offspring of Abraham, it says there. And who are the offspring of Abraham? You know, not, not those born Jewish, but those who share the faith that Abraham had. And Christ makes propitiation for them, for the sins of his people, it says, verse 17. That propitiation word, that's an important word. And it gets across this idea that we're talking about here. The Greek word actually kind of helps us understand it doesn't just take away the penalty for sin, but that it satisfies God's wrath due for sin, which is what we're talking about right here. Now think about this. As we're talking about why God had to become a man, why that was necessary, consider this. If, if the wrath of God is directed at mankind, then doesn't a man have to stand in that place? I mean, that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Jesus did that. And he could only do it because he wasn't born of Adam's seed. It's an important thing to understand. This is why the virgin birth we confess is so vital. It is not a secondary issue that some Christians have liberty to disagree on or hold a different view. No, anyone who doesn't believe that is not a Christian. That's how vital it is to the Christian faith. Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He wasn't born into sin like us. Had he been born of Adam's race, he would have been and would not have been able to make propitiation for our sins. If, if he were born of Adam's race, he could only take the wrath due for his own sin and no one else's. But he stood as man's perfect representative, pure, holy, innocent, undefiled, and he died in our stead to satisfy that wrath of God that we so justly deserve. And when I say that, don't let that just kind of go over your head. Don't let that go in one ear and out the other. He soaked it all up. It's not like he diverted God's wrath, all right? Sometimes, sometimes I think people think of it that way. Like because Jesus was standing there, you know, the father just kind of shot over his head or something. No, he took it all. He soaked up all of the wrath of God due for the sins of his people. 
We buy our paper towels from Costco. And they're all right. I don't have any complaints. They work pretty good. But one time recently, they, they were out, or maybe Amanda couldn't get to Costco, and so we got the, we got the luxury kind. We had to get bounty paper towels. The quilted quicker picker wrapper. And let me just tell you, those things are no joke, okay? One of those will wipe a countertop dry. I mean, nothing left. Now listen, if Jesus soaked up the wrath of God your mess deserved, do you need to fear death? What can death do to you? If that's true, if it's been absorbed in Christ, then what judgment is on the other side of death for those who are in Christ? Not a drop, y'all. So we don't have to live in that fear. There's nothing on the other side of that, that dreadful date whenever it may come and we don't know. There's nothing on the other side of that to fear. You're free from that lifelong slavery you were subjected to by sin, verse 15. The only one who could defeat Satan is God, and Jesus is, and the only one who could stand in man's place to absorb the wrath of God due for sin is God. But he had to be a man in order to do it. And so he is, and he still is. He still is, you realize that. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, it says there in verse 17. And he has never stopped being like you. He sits on his throne today, the God-man. Still every bit of man as he was when he was on the earth. Still every bit of a man as, as you are today. And for that reason, you not only have a Jesus who became a man, who had victory over the devil and death, and who atones for your sin, you have an advocate in heaven who can relate to you. That's our next point, the continuing ministry of Jesus. Jesus is a real human being. And so he experienced the life of a real human being. He didn't just become a human being and then was sort of protected under this shield or force field of his divinity. He lived the real thing. He experienced everything we experience. Like we said, cold, hunger, discomfort, pain, sickness, so on and so forth. He suffered. And he was tempted like us. And when you think of his suffering, sometimes, uh, sometimes we only think of that last chapter in the Gospels, don't we? Right? We, we, we hear about Christ's suffering, and our minds immediately go to the cross. And, and he did suffer there, terribly. But... When we speak of his suffering, when the author mentions his suffering here, it's not limited to his suffering on the cross. If it were, if that were true, how could he relate to you? As awful as crucifixion is, does that sum up human suffering? I don't think so. It's a terrible way to suffer. But how about feelings of rejection? You ever suffered that? How about loneliness? You ever been abandoned by someone? You know, friends or family, for whatever reason? That hurts. That's suffering. Has anyone ever lied about you? Has anyone ever said terrible things about you that just weren't true? 
Jesus was a man of sorrows. He understands human suffering. Not from afar either. Not by proxy, okay? Not just because he's God and all-knowing. But because he lived it. You understand that? He lived it the way you and I have lived it. He experienced grief. If you have experienced the deep pain of losing a loved one, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. In those moments of grief, and those moments of pain, he's not just a casual observer. No, I mean, he's experienced He lost people he loved. He saw death take them. And here's the point. Nobody can ever say Jesus couldn't possibly understand what I'm going through right now. Yes, he can. He absolutely can. He can relate to you. He can sympathize with you because he became a man. Sympathizing with you in your pain is part of the reason it was necessary for God to become a man. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He has made this by his suffering as a man. The only way he could really become a merciful and faithful high priest for us is to be one of us. To have compassion on us. And what's amazing is unlike the regular high priests of the Levitical priesthood, he not only cares for the people, has compassion over the people, and uh, prepares and offers a sacrifice for them, he himself is the sacrifice. He is the preparer of it, the one offering it on behalf of his people, but he's offering himself as a sacrifice for his people. The point is this, we can count on him because he has proven he can be counted on. He has compassion for us and he never takes a break from interceding for us before the Father. That's the continuing ministry of Christ. Have you ever been able to relate with someone suffering more because you yourself observed or endured it? Have you ever been able to minister to somebody in their grief? Perhaps over something as painful as the loss of a loved one because you, you personally know what that's like. And you've walked that road, right? You've cried your tears. You've called out to God in that moment and you can feel and connect with that person in that pain and be able to minister to them there in a unique and special way. We often have to go through trials in order to be prepared and equipped for what God has for us. We often don't realize what our suffering is even about until we're able to relate to someone in their suffering in order to minister to them. Think about that for a second. You know, think Paul, right? Everybody knows Paul. Did Paul suffer? Pretty severely. Paul suffered. Was he useful in ministry? He sure was. Suffering is often an instrument of perfecting. Another thing to consider about the continuing ministry of Christ is the God-man uh, that I think is the most difficult one but perhaps the most important one for our, uh, us to wrap our, our minds around is his ability to relate to us in our temptations. Because 
this is where we need his help most often. And there may, there may be significant gaps in our periods of, of trials and tribulations. There may be big gaps between our sufferings. But our temptations are always close, aren't they? I mean, that's day-to-day stuff. That's rubber-meets-the-road territory for Christians. And because Christ became a man, he can actually relate to you in that and minister to you there. Do you believe that? I think often the problem is we just don't invite him into that, do we? Another question sort of that comes up as we talk about this kind of thing. Were Jesus' temptations really temptations? I mean, really in the same way we have temptations? Yes, they were. He was temptable, but he was also impeccable, okay? So his temptations were different than ours in a sense because, yes, it's true, Jesus could not sin. Not just he did not sin, could not sin, okay? And so uh, we have to understand here that, that, that still, nonetheless, his temptations were in no way less than ours. They weren't inhuman. They, didn't, they weren't lacking in humanity in any way. They were only different because he lacked indwelling sin. He didn't have this, uh, this constant struggle between a sin nature and a, and a new nature that Paul talks about in Romans 7. But that doesn't mean Jesus can't relate to us in our temptations. He absolutely can But see, still, you know, you you hear that. You hear that and you say, yeah, but not really, because you just said yourself, right? He couldn't have sinned. He had that same sort of internal struggle between a sin nature and a new nature. So he couldn't possibly know, could he? He couldn't really know what it was like for me to be tempted because he never sinned. Do you think that made it harder or easier for him to resist temptation? When you think about temptation, what, what, what happens when you give in to temptation? It goes away, doesn't it? It's, a, it's like, a little, uh, like a little pressure release valve, you know? Pressure builds up, temptation, and then you just, psst, just let a little out, you know? Builds up again, psst, let out just a little bit more. It goes away. Not entirely, it'll come back. But just at least a little bit and for a little while it goes away. What happens if you don't give in? The pressure builds, right? What happens if you never, ever give in? How much more does the pressure build? Christ endured that for you. Never gave in. He understands temptation better than you do. And he resisted it. He endured that. He suffered that for you so that you could do it too. Right? He was tempted in the same way as you are. Satan tempted Jesus with fame and with glory. I mean, more severe temptations than you've ever faced. Because the stakes were higher, weren't they? You know... Satan knew that. He pulled out all the stops to get Jesus to cave because now finally the son of God. He's a man, right? And Satan had made man his little plaything. So now he's got him. He's got an advantage, but Jesus didn't budge. Didn't, ju- didn't budge at all in the, in the wilderness temptations. But you remember what happened right after that? 
It's important to note, uh, the, the devil left him and the angels came and ministered to Jesus there. You know, two things you can count on in that little scene right there in scripture, the angels were excited and Jesus was exhausted. You ever see a football player uh, just like leave it all on the line to win the game for his team? He's wiped out, he's exhausted, and his teammates come and help him off the field because he's weary, right? And they're shouting and cheering and smacking him on his helmet saying, you did it, you're the man, right? Imagine that, but the game isn't being played for a trophy, but for the whole world. Jesus stood up under that temptation. He endured it, but it was hard. There was a lot on the line, right? He can relate to us in our temptations. It's a lot harder for us to relate to him and his. It was hard when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his crucifixion. So hard and stressful, he sweat blood. And yes, that's, that's a thing. There's, there's a condition. I forget what it's called. Probably couldn't pronounce it if I did. But it generally happens under great stress when someone knows that they're about to die. And it's interesting that Luke, the physician, the one who knows about medical stuff, is the only one that includes that little tidbit in his account. That's the pressure, though, that temptation that Jesus felt. Let this cup pass, right? Though not my will, but yours be done. So let me ask you, have you ever been tempted to take a path different than the one you know God has for you? Jesus knows a lot about that. He knows a lot about that. And he was able to say, not my will, but yours be done. Because Jesus became a man, he can relate to you in more ways than you can count. He was made like you in every respect in order that he could relate to you in your suffering and in your temptations. So he could be compassionate and merciful toward you and intercede for you constantly like he does right now. He does right now. God became a man, wrapping all this up here, okay? God became a man, a flesh and blood man, not a superman, not God in a man suit, became a flesh and blood man, and he did it in order to defeat the devil and restore humanity. The only way that, that could happen is that man's sin was atoned for, that God's wrath was satisfied. And so if you're trusting Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, that's you this morning, all that's yours, mercy and forgiveness, but there's more. You have a friend a brother, a confidant in heaven who intercedes for you, who is well acquainted with your griefs, with your sorrows, who understands right where you are. He relates to you, every part of you, every quirk. And I know some of you, some of you got some quirks. <laughs> but every quirk, every weakness, every everything, he relates to you today. Okay, Christian, hear me. It's not something you're waiting on later. This is true of him, true of you today. He relates to you today. And he calls on you wherever you find yourself. Right? A lot of faith, little faith, maybe a little faith, a lot of doubt mixed in there. Or especially to those who are thinking about turning their back on Jesus and abandoning him altogether, like these people were that Hebrews is written to. He calls to all of you wherever you are, believe the gospel. 
Jesus took on flesh to die in the place of sinners, to take God's wrath for you, to free you from the judgment behind that death so that you can live free and resist the devil just as he did. And that's possible because he is in you. He watches over you. He stands by you and he will never abandon you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, again, thank you for your word. If it weren't for this, if it weren't for your gift of revelation to us, how could we know? God, we know because of sin, we'd be tempted to hide in the darkness, we'd be tempted to believe lies, we'd be tempted to exalt ourselves above you, but Lord, you have given us your word so that we may know you. You've given us your gospel. Lord, by your grace, you've allowed for hopefully all of us here this morning, to receive it. And God, for those who haven't, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be working in those hearts right now. We thank you that you do convict us of sin. You don't leave us where you find us. But you either take us from darkness into light or from light into greater light, and I pray that you would do that this morning. Until we meet again next week, Lord, we thank you, we love you, we praise you not just for the gift of our salvation, but because you are who you are, holy, wise, all-powerful, sovereign over everything. We owe our existence to you. And even if we did not exist, you would not cease to be as glorious as you are. God, we love you. We pray this in all of our prayers. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.